So tonight we are starting our fourth lesson on the series I called What's Next, or Shortcut uh, Heaven, and we're in our fourth lesson. We're looking at a timeline, which I hope all of you still have your handy-dandy said timeline, um, because we're working our way from left to right, trying to take a look at a series of events that are going to take place uh, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in, in our lesson uh, last week, the first part of the time timeline, uh, we looked at the resurrection, we looked at the part that I called paradise or the intermediate heaven, uh, we looked at the rapture, and we looked at the tribulation. So tonight we're going to take a look at a, a few more events, starting with the judgment seat of Christ. So if you're looking at the timeline, you're going to see that during the tribulation, after the rapture, Christians, from my perspective, have gone to be with the Lord in heaven, and there are two events that are going to take place, two events where the believers are having time with the Lord. The first event is the judgment seat of Christ. The second event is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Both of those events are taking place while the tribulation is going on on the earth. So we're not there. We're in glory. We're in what we've been calling the intermediate heaven. And the first event that we're going to be a part of is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's really important as we start this part of the study to make sure you understand what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. Because when you hear the word judgment, immediately what comes into your mind is probably sin. Is this a way for our sin to be judged? And I want to make certain that, that, that it's clear in your mind where sin got judged and when and by whom. So let's take a look at two passages in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and Titus 3, 5. So in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Bible says this, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The salvation that you and I understand that, that is granted to the believer who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that salvation is, is ours not by works, not by any activity. We bring zero to the table. It is 100% on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf on the cross. Piggybacking on that, that passage of scripture, another one in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse number 5, the Bible says that he saved us, he meaning Jesus, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to talk about how he poured out the Holy Spirit. The point I'm making is, is that when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, our sin is not in focus. Our sin was judged our sin was dealt with, our sin was pardoned, our sin was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, not to come up again. So this judgment that we're talking about, the judgment seat of Christ, is indeed only for believers. Um, and, and it's based on an understanding that was part of the culture that Paul and others were very, very familiar with. We're not so familiar with it, but they certainly were. 
So they had in their culture, both in the sporting parts of life and in the not-so-fun sporting parts, a, a place called a bima, B-E-M-A, a bima seat. It was a seat of authority. It was a place where things were judged. It was a thing where business was done. So in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 18, Paul actually finds himself standing before such a court in the, in the, in the town of Corinth. And, uh, and, and, and in that case, it had nothing to do with a sporting event. It actually had to do with a, a seat of judicial authority. But P- Paul loves sports. Paul, Paul would have been really enjoyed last night. Well, maybe not. But anyway, uh, he, he would be a sports guy. He wrote a lot about sports. He wrote about boxing. He wrote about wrestling. He wrote about running. He was kind of into the sporting uh, events. And he's going to borrow the idea of the Bema seat out of more of the sporting event than anything else. So let's, let's come to understand that. In that culture, both regionally and sometimes in a, in a larger setting, there would be a series of, of, of contests, much like we might call the Olympics. And there would be a number of, of events, uh, throwing things, run, you know, jumping over things, running, uh, primarily running. And at the end of those events, when the winners were going to be determined, there would be someone sitting literally on a, a, a raised platform called the Bema seat. And so that person would sit there, the, the, the winners would come to receive their awards. And the awards for those, those runners or whoever they were, were a set of crowns, usually made out of, out of vines and so forth, but they wore them on their heads. So they received them from the judge at the Bema seat, and then everyone could see they've got one on their head. Hey, he, he won the Bema seat. He went before the Bema seat. He received his crown, and he must have won uh, in that sporting event. Um, that is the picture that Paul takes out of their culture to describe for us what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. In fact, that's the term. It's the Bema seat. That's where we get the idea of the judgment seat. Now, sin is not being judged. So what is being judged? Well, let's turn to two places in Scripture. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we'll slip over into 1 Corinthians. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 first. So the Bema seat that Paul's referring to is mentioned in chapter 5. Look at verse number 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So everybody that is a believer is going to stand before the Lord at the judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, uh, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll look at a few verses, starting in about verse number 9. So, um, for we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood or hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. 
if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. Now, um, this concept, this idea, is, is that the Bema seat is not a judicial bench, but rather a place for rewards. So if you were envisioning a, an Olympic uh, uh, stadium and all kinds of uh, events have gone on and it's now time for them to get their rewards, they're going to come before the Bema seat. Some runners are going to get a crown. Some runners do not. The ones who do are thrilled and, and excited. And, and my goodness, there's some great things for them ahead. In some cases in uh, the Gre Greco-Roman world, if you won in one of those regional contests, when you went home, you never had to work another day in your life. So it was a big deal. So, so Paul's saying, hey, this picture of this rewards, uh, this reward seat, I want you to have in your mind. The Christian life is indeed a kind of a race. And, and what God's doing at the judgment seat of Christ is he's taking his kids, again, only believers, and he is going to make certain that for, for his kids, there are rewards passed out. Now, I want to take a moment and say what the Bema seat is not. And I keep trying to emphasize this, but I want to say it a slightly different way. It is not used to determine whether a person gets to go to heaven or not. So if I were to, if I were to come up to one of you and, and say, you know, hey, Kara, on what basis? Or first off, Kara, do you know you're going to heaven? And she's going to tell me yes. And if I said to Karen, Kara, on what basis are you going to go to heaven? She's not going to say to me, well, I taught in a Christian school and, you know, I was a really good wife and my children adore me and, and all the other things that are no doubt true about Kara. What she's going to tell me is, Sherry, there was a time and a place in my life when I submitted myself to Christ. I received him as my Lord and Savior. I took the gift that he offered me that he he bought by, by the precious blood on the cross of Calvary. I accepted it, and he became my Lord. And it's on that basis that I get to go to heaven. So what we're talking about here at the, the judgment seat of Christ is not a way for someone to, to, to get an entrance into heaven. That's already determined. When a person dies, their, their eternal destiny is set. There's not a, oh, now that you get to go to the judgment seat of Christ and plead your case— there's not a, as we were talking last week in, in one of the other traditions, the Catholic Church, there's not, a, there's not a purgatory, there's not a limbo, there's not a whatever. You either have Christ as your Lord and Savior and therefore have entrance into heaven or you do not. If you do, then the judgment seat of the Christ is an event you're going to go to while the rest of mankind is, is going through the tribulation. So let's ask what it is. And in order to do that, I need to say one more thing. It is not a place to punish people for their sin. Where was my sin dealt with? Since I was picking on Kara, we'll, we'll throw her in. Where was Kara's sin dealt with? At the cross. Exactly. It's the same for me. It's the same for you. It's the same for everyone for however, 2,000 years. They have put their faith and trust in what happened an actual historical event that took place at a time and, and place, and, and, and on that basis, we have an eternal destiny. What we're talking about here is not a place to punish believers. This is not the place where he takes all your sin, throws it up on the video screen, and, and all of mankind gets to sit and watch. I've had it described to me for that in that, in that way. And, and can you imagine? I mean, uh, we, we, would be, we would be so 
consumed with guilt and shame and frustration. Besides, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches about our sin. So I put a number of verses in your notes. We, we need to go to at least one of them, and that's Psalm 103. So if this place is not to punish us for our sin, let's take a look at what happens to our sin. Psalm 103, we'll start with about verse 10 or so. 103.10. The Bible says this, He does not treat us as our sins deserve, praise the Lord, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as east is from west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. So how far away from us are our sins? As far as east is from west. In Isaiah 38, I put this one in your notes, verse 17, he talks about all of our sins are hidden behind his back. I love that, that imagery. In, in uh, a little later in the book of Isaiah in chapter 44, he talks about that they were swept away like the morning mist, gone. Um, in Micah chapter 7, he talks about how they were hurled, thrown, chucked into the deeps, deeps or depths of the sea. Um, in 1 John 1, 9, he talks about how we have been purified from all of our sin. And then, and then the kind of the, the piece de resistance, the cherry on top, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 12, he remembers their sins no more. So even if you brought them up at the judgment seat of Christ, if you said, excuse me, Lord, can we just have a moment here? I want to talk about that one sin, that season of my life. He's going to look at you and go, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Because the the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, period. If you haven't meditated on that in a while, Easter week is the time to do it. Just sit down and say to yourself, all of my sin, past, present, and future, were dealt with at the cross. And he removed them in all those ways I just read to you. The judgment seat of Christ is not about my sin. That was handled on the cross. So what is getting tested? Well, uh, back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he mentioned gold and silver and precious metals. He contrasts two, two groups of things that, when put into a fire, react differently. If it's gold or silver or precious stones, or precious metals rather, when they are in a fire, they are refined. They are perfect when they come out, even better. But if you put in things that were made of wood or hay or stubble in, and into that same fire, they don't come out. They're completely consumed. So what's going on at the judgment seat of Christ is that God is giving rewards for the, for the work, or more specifically for the investment of time and talent and treasure on the behalf of the believer. What did you do with the time you were given on earth? 75 years, 85 years, my dad's 95, 95 years. What did you do with the time? Then what did you do with the talent? Not just, you know, an ability that you have, maybe one that you developed, maybe one that God gave you, maybe a spiritual gift as well. What did you do with those gifts? You know, did you hide them under your bed? 
or were they an active part of your everyday life? And then lastly, the treasures. And treasures is just another biblical word to say money, resources. What did you do with resources that you had? So when we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, really the one prevailing question is, so what would you do with what I gave you? And if it was gold and silver and precious uh, uh, metals, then it's going to come out refined and there are rewards. If it was wasted, if it was squandered, if it was invested in other stupid things, then God's going to go, well, you got your full award when you were on earth. If you took all your money and consumed it all on yourself and had a glorious time, okay, you can do that. And at the judgment seat of Christ, he might, he might say, so, Cher, how was it? Because that's it. But if you take your time and your talents and your treasure and you invest it in a way that, that allows Christ to be shown through those uh, activities and events and investments, then there are rewards, literal rewards. Now, some in Christendom have said, oh, you know what? We shouldn't have to have rewards to do our best. And I agree, we shouldn't. But we're human. He made us this way. The Bible is full of references about how there are rewards for God's kids. And in this particular context, he is going to give out, much like the guy at the top of the Bema seat handed out a crown, and the guy who ran the fastest got to put the crown on and go home to his town with that crown very visible. The Bible calls out at least five crowns, and they don't make a big deal about it. They're just mentioned, but I, I wanted to list them for you, and there are other things that there are rewards for, but there is, there's something called an incorruptible crown that's spelled out in 1 Corinthians 9. This seems to be for the person or persons who, who kind of master their old nature. They say, that's who I used to be, but I'm not anymore. Uh, I think very much in this context of people that come out of addictions and at a great price to them, leave it behind themselves. That might be an, an, an incorruptible crown that someone earns. There's the crown of rejoicing, which specifically is called out for, for what we call soul winners or people that share Christ, that are comfortable talking to the guy in a restaurant or on an airplane or his next door neighbor or his cousin Fred about, uh, about Jesus Christ. A soul winners, a mindset of evangelism. There is a specific crown of rejoicing for that person. There's one called the crown of life that's in James and also in Revelation 2. Apparently for those who, who are, are successful in, in uh, enduring temptation, that they go through apparently some heavy-duty seasons of, of temptation and come out victorious on the other side. And God says there's a crown for that. There's a crown of righteousness. This is a cool one for everyone who loves the doctrine, the ideas, the, the truth about God's second coming. So all of us sitting here in this class right now, we are focused on delighting in, trying to learn about God's second coming and all the events associated with it. That, that, put, might, that might put us in line for a crown of, of, of righteousness. And then the last one I would mention is called the crown of glory. And this one appears to be for those who are faithful preachers and teachers of God's word. It comes out in Acts and also in 2 Timothy. Now, you say, all right, Cherry, I'm buying it. They've got a beam of seat. They call, they call somebody forward, so we'll go back to Kara. I'm picking on her tonight. 
Kara's name is called. She comes forward. God starts a review of Kara's life. So, Kara, I gave you this much time. Kara, I gave you these many talents. And Kara, I gave you this much treasure. So the real question is, what'd you do with it? And based on his understanding, then he reaches over and starts doling out the, the crowns. Now, I don't know if it's one crown or two crowns or 50 crowns or, you know, six crowns or little crowns or I, I don't know, but there is a reward. Now, immediately you should say to yourself, so what are we going to do with those rewards? Exactly. Because if we just consume them, if we just take it and go, thanks, hey, really appreciate that. Hey, did anybody happen to notice this one I got? Did you see that I got the rejoicing one? You know, the moment that happens, gone. So let's look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 10 and get a sense of what happens when we receive those crowns. Revelation chapter 4 is one of the places in the book of Revelation where we have a a sneak peek peek into the throne room of God. In about number, let's see, verse 10, it says, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy. O oh, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and praise, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. We turn around, it's our one moment in a tangible way to say a, a heartfelt uh, uh, message of appreciation. I mean, that's just such a shallow word. Gut-level gratitude for God's grace and mercy, whatever the the minor little whatever it was that we got, we turn around and put it immediately at his feet. I often has a, have a joke about um, Marianne Fisher, a teacher that used to teach with us at Stony Brook, that I did not want to be behind her in the line at the judgment seat of Christ because you're going to be standing there a while. I mean, the woman was a saint. And, 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 and somehow or another, the, the idea that I had in my mind that, you know, she gets, you know, 112 of them, and then it's my turn and I get two, uh, there is a sense in which there is a, a loss. I don't think the loss is comparative. I don't think it's my joke of, of Mary Ann's in line and she gets, you know, whatever amount and I get this amount. I don't think it's like that. But let's say he calls good old Kara forward again. Poor Kara, she's just really getting it tonight. But let's say it, we put... Kara comes, it's your turn, Kara. And the Lord and the Lord does that. Okay, what did you do with the time and the and the talents and the treasure that I gave? And you and he goes, Well sorry. Next. Now I'm being funny, but is it possible that we would feel loss? Yes. Yes. In fact, I believe that when the the scripture talks about uh, there being some suffering of loss in 1 Corinthians 3, a little further down than when we read, and, and, and even in Revelation 3 about there being some tears, I think the tears are shed not because there's punishment. It's not like God, you know, calls me forward and whaps me around a little bit. And, you know, you could have, you could have, you should have, you should have, you should have. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is it dawns on me in clarity 
what I could have and should have done with my life. And instead, I invested it in this and this and this and this and this. And at that moment, my heart is broke. Not because I'm getting a punishment or a discipline, but because I am not going to get that crown to be able to have something to lay at his feet as part of my opportunity to worship him. In fact, the scripture says, um, it doesn't say, rather, that tears are actually wiped away until Revelation chapter 21, right before the end. I think there will be some tears at the judgment seat of Christ. Not because there's discipline, not because there's any kind of judgment in that sense, but because you and I will know the loss. I think it will be possible for us to say, man, I wasted so much of my time. Or, you know what, I, I lived a South County lifestyle and I had all those resources. Or, or I had abilities and talents that I used for making a living or being one of these or becoming one of those or doing this, that other thing, when I could have invested that in the cause of Christ. I think that revelation will dawn on us as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be some, some sense of loss. Um, I know this is going to provoke some questions and we'll take them at the end, but I just wanted to make one more statement of what I think happens at the judgment seat of Christ. I also believe there is an element of ruling and reigning. And um, uh, I, I put on your notes on the top of page number three that the believers are given an opportunity to do at least three kinds of ruling. One over the earth itself, one over the nations of the earth, and the third one over angels. Uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians, actually we talked about it one night when we were talking about angels, that there is a sense in which believers get to judge the, the evil angels or the demons, uh, and that's part of this process of what's taking place at the judgment seat of Christ. So if, if that's all business, which it would be, it would be Christ on the throne and, and, and the allocation of the, of the awards and then the awards being laid at the feet of Jesus and then some ruling and reigning taking place, the next event is, is a shift in focus. More, much more is the judgment seat of Christ a serious, focused, uh, deliberate kind of a moment. But the next thing is is a very huge celebration. Now, this morning I used the word party, and I, and I contrasted it, you know, my behavior at 17, 18, 19 years of age in college, that kind of partying, with the kind of partying that happened when I was a, a kid and got taken to a family reunion. My mom was from Arkansas, and she called them her people, and one time she took us to a family reunion literally out in the sticks of... of uh, of of Arkansas, and uh, I remember I remember the event very very clearly. You know, we, we were out in the sticks, driving along, bouncing in the car. We came around a bend. There was a wide spot in the road. That's about it. There was a wooden house over there with a a porch on it, and a couple of rocking chairs on the on the front of the porch. And they had taken some sawhorse brackets and then laid wood on them and made this this very long table. In my mind, I was about nine years of age. It went on for, you know, three blocks. I don't know how far it was, but it was a long. And and I watched them take white tablecloths that had been hung on 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 laundry lines and snap them in the wind and then lay them out on those tables. And those white tablecloths went for, you know, miles. And then everybody started putting bowls on those tables. 
you know, there was a bowl of this and a bowl of that and a bowl of this and a bowl of that. I mean, it was, it went on forever. And, and, and we, we sat there and ate until we were crazy full. Then we sat around and sang. People brought out instruments that I'd never even seen or heard of or have seen since. Um, I, I, I was turned loose to go find chicken eggs in the chicken coop. And I took a bell like the one we ring at Stony Brook and went into the chicken coop going like this with that bell. Apparently they didn't lay eggs for months. Uh, it, it was it, it was an amazing day in my mind. The marriage supper of the lamb is more like that, not like party, like like a silly stupidness that was maybe a part of some of our childhoods, but but more of a a major social personal filled event with meaning, a meaning an event filled with meaning. This thing, the judgment, or excuse me, the marriage supper of the lamb is described in, in several different places. Um, in Matthew, he uses two parables to give us some idea about it. In Matthew 22, he talks about a wedding banquet where the head of the house sends people out and invites them to come and gets all mad when they don't come. And then in Matthew chapter, chapter 25, he talks about the, the ten virgins and their, and their lamps. Do you remember that one? So just a, a pause on why that's important. So the marriage supper in, in the culture that Jesus was raised was not a, you know, come for a one-hour wedding or a two-hour wedding with dinner. It went on for literally a week and maybe longer, depending on how wealthy your parents were. So the groom, once he, you know, caught his eye on a young lady and had her in mind, he made his way over to the young lady's father, and there was an actual uh, discussion. Either his dad went with him, or his uncle went with him, or his own older brother went with him, and they and they haggled back and forth on the dowry and the details of whatever. And then the the the, the deal was struck. Once the deal was struck, it was as if they were married, and that's what happened with Joseph and Mary. That's why he decided in in the early chapter of or Matthew chapter one to not put her or, or to put her away quietly because as if they were married, and now she's pregnant. This is a bad thing. So that, 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 that deal that struck counted. But the groom would then go home. If he was a Bedouin, he went home. He started killing animals and getting his, his, uh, his tent ready, you know, rolling out the skins. If he lived in a village, he literally physically made a house. He couldn't bring his bride home to his dad's house. He had to have his own house. When he got everything ready, then he came back to get his bride. On the way in, his groomsmen let her girls know, hey, he's coming. Party's about to start. And the women would run outside with their, with their lamps and light up the road as he was coming down to, to be at her home. The story in Matthew 25 is that half the ladies had plenty of oil and they could sit out there a long time because they didn't know exactly when he was coming. And half didn't. But the point of the story was preparedness. We don't know when he's coming, but he's coming back for his bride. When he gets there, he has his bride. The, the marriage the supper happens, and it goes on for days. The, the marriage is consummated, and the families are united. That is the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a host. It's God the Father. There is a bridegroom. That is Jesus Christ. Very clearly stated as, as that in Luke 14. And then there is, a, there is a bride, and the bride of Christ is us. It's the church. Um, the scripture talks about the bride in 1 Corinthians, let's, or excuse me, 2. Let's go to 2 Corinthians for a moment, just to make sure that we understand where that term comes from. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 11. And uh, let's see, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He's referring to the church. He's referring to you and me. We are the bride. The dowry has been paid. The deal was struck. Who paid the price for the dowry? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says you were bought with a price. And that price was the price of Christ's suffering on the cross. And then some, some uh, expositors of the New Testament try to figure out who the guests at that marriage supper will be. Um, some believe that they are the Gentiles who get saved after the rapture. Could be. Uh, I'm not really clear and, and don't have a position one way or another. But the marriage supper of the Lamb is more like a family reunion. So I want you to just picture for a moment, you know, my grandmother's old house and what that white tablecloth looked like. And you arrive. Now, now here's your choice. You could go sit down at the end of the table and, and talk to Abraham. Or you could come down this way and have a chat with Esther. Or you could go around on that side and ask Timothy what Paul was really like. Or you could come down on this side and ask the disciples what it was like following Jesus around. Or, or maybe you sit by, down by your own grandmother or uncle or best friend who passed away before you. This marriage supper of the Lamb is an amazing, incredible event to look forward to. All right. There is an event number seven that we want to talk about tonight before we go. And this one is the actual second coming. So we, we talked uh, earlier about there are two comings of Christ. He came as a baby and he comes uh, as, the, as the king. So we're coming up to Palm Sunday. And when Jesus rode in on the donkey and the crowd saw him, what, what did they shout? They shouted, Hosanna, or save us. And they waved palm branches and they took their coats off and they threw it down. Now, what were they picturing? They were picturing a conquering king coming in to making life much easier for them. They wanted to throw off the Roman uh, rule. And so suddenly they see Jesus it's the same crowd that saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They've just, just seen that. And now they're going, all right, he's going into Jerusalem. This is a great time. He's going to take over and get rid of those awful Romans. And things will be the way they should be. And unfortunately, he, he went into Jerusalem, but their expectations were not met. He did not come as the king. He came as the suffering servant. He offered himself that Friday night on an old rugged cross. So when we talk about the second coming, we have a kind of a, 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 a part A and a part B, if you will, to the second coming. If you buy my teaching on the rapture, that's the A part. He is coming again, but, but he's going to meet us in the clouds. He doesn't come down and stomp his foot on the Mount of Olives. But now when we get to this event, we're talking about Jesus's actual return and this time as king. And so the passage in Zechariah chapter 14, find Zechariah in your Old Testament. And this is the passage that specifically talks about that when he returns, he will stomp his foot on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives just being a hill in Jerusalem of some renown. Okay, wait a minute. I got to find Zechariah here just towards the end of the Old Testament. There's Zephaniah. It's got to be the next book. There we go. 14, 
verse 4. Um, verse number 1 says, a, a day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. Uh, then, he, then he says, uh, I'll gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against the other nations. And then verse 4, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and the other half moving south. And then all kinds of other things are, are going to be going on. This part, part B of the second coming, this is when he does show up as king. This is when he does show up as ruling and reigning. This is the time when he is going to make things right. Now, the, the scripture talks about that his return triggers the battle of Armageddon, uh, Revelation chapter 16, and then uh, again mentioned in, in chapter 19. The word Armageddon is just a Hebrew word that refers to a, to a place. It refers to Mount Megiddo. Megiddo is a hilltop in the northern part of, of, of Israel. And if you go there, they'll take you up to the top of the mountain and you're going to look down on this incredibly um, massive valley. It goes on for miles and miles and miles and miles. That valley where, where you're looking down from the Mount Megiddo is, is a significant place in human history. All kinds of battles were fought right in that valley. So, so not only did the Egyptians fight there and the Assyrians fought there, the Greeks, the Romans, the Crusaders, but World War I, there were some tremendous battles in the, battle, in the, in the valley of Megiddo. The battle of Armageddon is the place where God and his army, raise your hand, that's us. We were up in, uh, we were up in, the, uh, in the temporary or what we called intermediate heaven. And at the end of the time of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lord goes, all right, it's time. Let's see. I need all my soldiers. Let me line up. And you and I become part of that army. And he comes down, stomps his foot on the Mount of Olives, makes his way up to the valley of the Megiddo, and then they have the great, the great battle that we read about that was so vicious and so terrible and so significant that the blood in that valley ran as high as, as, the, as, as part of the, uh, up on a horse, were, were part of the uh, leather uh, of the horse, whatever, saddle, part of the saddle would have been visible. His point is, is it is a massive, massive, uh, creaming, if you will, that's not a biblical term, of Satan and his uh, uh, his forces. It is, the battle of Armageddon is that future battle between the forces of good with God and the forces of evil. Um, Christ actually physically returns to the earth during that battle. He will, and I put it right in your notes, he will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, Revelation 19, he will bind up Satan. He will set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And at Armageddon, the Lord Jesus Christ treads the, the, the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And in essence, all things then are made right. He's not finished with the events of, of the end of time, but it is a cataclysmic, significant moment when he comes uh, and and there is the Battle of Armageddon. Now, with those seven events, I, I want to ask you this question. So, so 
so what? I mean, so what does that mean to us today? We have mortgages to pay and kids to put in college and grandkids to play with and, and work to do and illnesses to deal with and, and, and kids to raise and a thousand other things. Where does an understanding of those seven events, uh, you know, really, really affect us? Well, when John heard the roar of the great multitude in heaven who were shouting hallelujah in Revelation 19.1, he fell at the feet of the angel and he tried to worship him. And then the angel replied, don't do this. I'm, I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold on to the testimony of Jesus. And then he told John, worship God. So my, my answer to my question of so what, to you and I, as we come to understand these events better as we grapple with what is it that's in front of us and we think through things like the judgment seat of Christ and what impact that truth has on our life today, we, we incorporate that into the mindset of, I need to worship God. I need to worship him when I wake up. I need to worship him at my work. I need to worship him when I'm driving. I need to worship him when I'm playing with my grandkids. When I'm, a, when I'm teaching my kids at school, I need to have the mindset of worship. And with that mindset, we will be prepared for what's coming. All right. Well, thank you for coming. It, was no, it would have been no fun without you. Let's, 